0: Last Sunday, if you were with us live or followed on the live stream, we we took a moment and we considered the events of the cross of our Lord, the terrible, agonizing death that Jesus died so that we could receive forgiveness and grace. It certainly was a horrific way to die. Our time together concluded with our Savior dead. Hanging on the cross. The testimony of the Roman centurion that was there at the foot of the cross was an appropriate declaration that truly this is the Son of God. And while last week we talked about the idea that the cross is the centerpiece of human history, the cross is not the end of the story. It would be a terrible conclusion to an amazing life if all there was was the cross. But what occurred on the third day is what makes us who we are. To put it plainly, if there is no resurrection, All that we are doing today is pointless. It's a waste of time. I mean, it's sure good to be together. I enjoy being with you. But everything that we've done, everything that we have committed ourselves to, everything that we we live out and invest in would be pointless. And the Apostle Paul admits this. And I love how the writers of Scripture don't hide from this fact. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is vain your faith also is vain it's empty it's worthless our redemption, though, and our future hinges on the certainty and the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. All that we are and everything that we are looking forward to hinges on the truth that Jesus Christ is not dead, but is alive. Our redemption in that if he has not raised then his suffering on the cross was not sufficient because the Father would have rejected the sacrifice that he made for our sins. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Paul writes, Who was declared the Son of God? This is, he's speaking of Jesus. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead? according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection from the dead was God's declaration with power that the Son is truly who He says He is. Our future, in that our resurrection is impossible without Christ, our future means that we too are raised to new life. Jesus is alive and in faith, our sins are forgiven and God raises us from the dead. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. He is the first fruits and by faith we too are raised to new life. Now, you may feel alive this morning, and I hope you do, but there is a day coming when you will come to life like you have never known. And that is a result of Jesus Christ coming out of the tomb alive. And so as we did last week, I believe it's entirely appropriate for us to revisit the gospel accounts of the resurrection of our King. We confess that Jesus is raised from the dead. But I also believe we can become complacent that Jesus is raised from the dead. I mean, we're talking about resurrection power. And we're talking about that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power in us. And I don't know about you, but I don't always live as I have that kind of power. For many of you, I'll ask you tomorrow morning when you try to roll out of bed. Right? Resurrection power. I mean, this is real deal, shake your world, move mountains kind of power. And so it's entirely appropriate for us to revisit the events that took place on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. Now, before we look at the resurrection accounts specifically, I want to catch you up to date on what happened on Friday and Saturday that led to the resurrection. So we concluded last week with the Centurion's declaration that truly this is the Son of God. Now, the the gospel writers tell us, Matthew tells us, and, and the other gospels indicate that when Jesus died, that a man came from Arimathea, to receive the body of Jesus. His name is Joseph. All four gospel writers talk about Joseph from Arimathea. Arimathea was a town in Judea, and he stepped forward to receive the body of Jesus. Now, we know that criminals that died by crucifixion would have been taken off the cross and buried kind of like in a mass grave. And then after their bodies would have decayed, they would have dug up the ground and collected their bones and and taken them elsewhere. That's how they treated people in the first century world. Joseph of, of Arimathea steps in and intercedes to receive the body of Jesus. Now, Luke tells us that Joseph from Arimathea was a part of the council, and the council is the Sanhedrin. They're the religious leaders with the Pharisees, the ruling council. They were the ones that contended with Jesus throughout his public ministry and sought to um, discredit him and at this point destroy him. Joseph of Arimathea, a part of this religious sect, uh, receives the body of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. John says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus in secret because he was afraid, he was fearful of how the Jews would respond. And so think through this now. You have this private disciple who has watched his Lord, be crucified. And he steps out in a public declaration to receive the body of Jesus and the care for it. And what he's admitting now to everyone around him is that I believe in this person. He acknowledges that Jesus is certainly a unique person in history. And so he requests from Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, that he could receive the body. And he places the body in a new tomb that was purchased for his family. There was a garden nearby, and Joseph lays the body in the cut tomb in the, in the side of a cliffside. And there he lays the body. This is all Friday evening. All of this was done quickly because it was the day of preparation. The next day is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is when you rested. The Sabbath also said that you had to take care of the dead. You couldn't leave people dead out there. You had to take care of them and get rid of the the situation so that you can rest on the Sabbath. John tells us that with Joseph of, of Arimathea, there was another man that helped him. And his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the same Nicodemus that visited Jesus in John 3 at night and began to question Jesus about what it means to be born again. Nicodemus was likely a secret convert of the Lord. He too was a religious leader and while Joseph secured the tomb, Nicodemus brought about 65 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And if you read the accounts, your, your translation may say 100 pounds, but there's really a mistranslation of the words. It's actually about 65 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and they would wrap the bodies to, to kind of um, take care of the decay and the smells and those kinds of things. And they would have wrapped Jesus up in, in cloths of strip uh, tightly, and they placed him in the tomb. And it says that Joseph rolled the stone in front of the tomb. Matthew, Mark, and Luke conclude that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed the burial from afar. This is all Friday evening. So they know where the tomb is. And they pay, they pay careful attention because they intend returning to the tomb after the Sabbath to finish the preparation of the body. Now you need to understand this. As we look at the resurrection account of the women that go to the tomb early on Sunday morning and later the disciples, nobody that was trusting in Jesus believed that he would be raised from the dead. It wasn't even a thought. When they woke up Sunday morning to do their thing, they're just going about their business to go to the tomb and to to care for a dead body. In fact, the disciples, as we indicate later in the Gospels, after Jesus is raised, when he visits them on Sunday evening, they're huddled in the upper room with the door locked. They're not out searching for a a Savior who's raised from the dead. On Saturday, Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 and following tells us that the religious leaders gathered and they went before Pilate and they asked, that the tomb of Jesus be protected by guards. Whether it was the temple guard of the Jews, and they were asking permission for that, or whether it was uh, the Roman guard, and I believe it was likely the Roman guards that would have protected the tomb, they asked that Jesus' tomb be protected because they feared that if somebody stole the body, then the Jewish... Disciples of Jesus could say that he's resurrected. Now, I I find it completely ironic that in this account, that the only people believe in the possibility of resurrection at this point are the people that hated and wanted to destroy Jesus. But these religious leaders are constantly looking over their shoulders because they're afraid they're afraid of who Jesus is because he is truly unique. They had just watched the earth respond to his death in the earthquake. The sky darkening black, the veil of the, tor- uh, of the, the temple being torn in two. Jesus has the ability to turn their system upside down. And so once again they're at at it trying to stop his message. In a very practical way, I think one that many of you can identify with. They're trying to cancel Jesus. We live in a cancel culture, right? I mean, it seems like every week if we don't agree with something, we don't like something, then we try to cancel it, or blot it out, erase it. Listen, they've been trying to cancel Jesus and the church for two thousand years. They're not gonna win. You have to understand this as resurrected people. That's who we are in Christ. People that have been resurrected to new life. That we are living in an age more and more where they're coming after us. They're coming after the message that we believe in. But Jesus assured us, he assured his disciples, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, nothing, nowhere, can overthrow him. And so we come to Sunday morning. What I'd like to do is read for you a few of the accounts in the Gospels. I'm going to start in Mark 16 and read for you verses 1 through 7. Before I read those verses, I want to read to you one verse from Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 2, we read, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. In Mark 16, we read, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?" And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And in John 20, verse 1, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So let me just share with you, you have four accounts of the resurrection. You have four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by four writers that were inspired by God. And when you read these parallel accounts and hold them up, You might see details in one that really isn't clarified in another, or you might see what we would say is a contradiction. We see that some of the gospel writers say that two women went to the tomb. Some say three or four went to the tomb. John says one went to the tomb. So who's right? Well, they're all right. In fact, the the parallel accounts that don't agree 100% give further verification that the testimony that they write is true. Because if they're trying to concoct a story that Jesus is the raised Savior, then they would want to get all the details right all of the time. But they don't. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're led to write the things that we read in the gospel accounts, and they give us variations. They're not contradictions like one was right and one was wrong, or they're guessing at it, but they choose to give us details from their perspective that we need to hear. And when you put them all together, side by side, it gives us a full picture of what took place in the life and ministry of Jesus. I've heard people attack the, the inspiration and truthfulness of Scripture because they see these apparent contradictions. And it's easily settled. It's easily understood when you begin to pr- see the perspective that these men are writing what they saw and heard. And sometimes they choose to give us certain details that others, other writers choose not to give. So what do we know? Well, we know it's Sunday morning. The Sabbath is over. The Sabbath would have ended at sundown on Saturday evening. We know that some of the women, Mary Magdalene and and Mary, the the, uh, mother of James and Salome, bought Uh, spices Saturday evening because they were going to go to the tomb early Sunday morning and finish the preparation of the body of Jesus because of the haste on the day of preparation of getting him buried so that he wasn't hanging on the tree or buried in a common grave. That was their expectation. But we know something supernatural happened sometime in the night early Sunday morning Matthew 28.2 tells us there was a severe earthquake. Now, it may have been a general in that area look, uh, kind of earthquake, or it could have been a super local earthquake right around the tomb. There was an earthquake that had occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Now, Matthew tells us that an angel of the Lord ascended. We read in the other accounts, when the women actually enter the tomb, there's actually two angels there. And so we see that the angel descended and rolled away the stone and sat on it. Now, who was there guarding the tomb? Roman soldiers. We read in the gospel accounts about these Roman soldiers later on in Matthew 28 that sometime after the event of the earthquake and the angelic appearance and the the stone rolling away, they got scared and left. Because after the resurrection account of he's not here, they the empty tomb, they're back in Jerusalem talking to the religious leaders. They're talking to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders say, hey, we'll take care of it. We got this covered. In fact, we read in Matthew 28. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They paid them off and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, come on, these are trained Roman soldiers. Their life was on the line. If what they were guarding happened to disappear, they're dead. I mean, these are trained Roman soldiers. This isn't like hiring me to guard something of any value, where I'm like, hey, I'm sleepy, I'm going to take a nap. These are guys that are professional at what they do. And they ran off looking for help. And the religious leaders go on and say, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. The governor is Pilate, and the religious leaders were really good at winning over Pilate. They convinced him to crucify Jesus. They convinced him to send a Roman guard to the tomb. And if there's any trouble, the religious leaders are like, hey, we got this guy in our pocket because he knows he's afraid that if we stir up any kind of problems, he's going to acquiesce and do whatever we say. And so they took the money and did as they had been instructed and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day that's Matthew's account he says even to the day of writing this many years later probably 20 or two decades after these events he's like the story is still being said by these men and so early sunday morning there was an earthquake An angel rolled away the stone, and when the Sabbath was over, these women bring their spices and come to anoint him. But what's interesting is John tells us that only Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark. The stone is already rolled away. All four gospel accounts say that when the, the women arrive at the tomb, there is no guards. They had already left. And so what was it? Was it just Mary by herself? Was it a few other women? Was it a group of them? When did it happen? Was it in the night? Was it early in the morning when the sun was rising? Well, it's very likely when you put it together that all these women went to the tomb. And Whether Mary was going to meet them or Mary raced ahead of them, Mary got there first saw that the stone was rolled away. And what does it say? Well, it says that she was afraid. In John chapter 20, verse 2, after she saw the empty tomb, we read, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. There is no hope of resurrection. They thought that somebody stole the body. And it's like these women are on their way. Mary races ahead, sees the empty tomb. She races back. She probably passes these women on the road somehow. And she reports to Peter and John, who is the disciple who Jesus loved, reports the news. The women are there at the tomb experiencing what the angels were saying. And then Peter and John are going to make their way to the tomb. But you have to understand what these women are are experiencing. In Mark chapter 16, we read that when they went to the tomb, to the entrance of the tomb, they had already been thinking, who's going to remove the stone so we can prepare the body? The stone is moved. And this is a huge kind of uh, cylinder, kind of stone that was rolled. I'm going to be very careful when I say this. These women weren't going to be able to move the stone. There was no strong man competition in the first century world. In fact, it wouldn't even be one man or two or three men that could move this extremely heavy stone that was rolled in a trench, and archaeology confirms this, rolled in a trench, and it sat in a seat. And it was very difficult to remove it. This was an angelic. God-inspired movement. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. A young man. It's the reference of the angel. It wasn't some guy that was just in the area visiting. It was the angel that descended. Luke, Luke 24.4 says there was two men, but Mark focuses on the one man that spoke. And the angel says to these women, do not be amazed. Do not be amazed. You came here looking for a dead man. He's not here. Don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. In Mark 16, verse 8, we read, They went out and fled from the tomb. The women heard this message. He is not here. He is risen. Now go tell the disciples. The women hear this message. They went out and fled from the tomb. If there was like a a ring camera on the side of the tomb watching what was going on, they would have seen these women dart out of the tomb. And they're making their way back. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In Matthew 28, verse 8, we read, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. That word fear in the Greek is the, the Greek word phobos. It's where we get the English word Phobia. And what is a phobia, right? It's something, it's a fear that grips us that isn't necessarily a real fear, but it's real to you at that time, and you can't explain it. Like if someone asked you, why are you afraid of that? You'd say, I don't know, I just am. This is what's going on in their minds as they're fleeing the tomb and making their way back to the disciples, Now, what's interesting in Matthew 28 is as the women leave the tomb, along the way back to the disciples in verse 9, we read, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet. They touched him. He wasn't this mirage. He wasn't a ghost. He was a real resurrected, had a body, Jesus. They touched his foot and they worshiped him. He didn't refuse the worship. He's the son of God. And they head back to tell the disciples. What what were they to tell the disciples? Well, Jesus says in verse 10, go tell the brethren to leave for Galilee. Galilee from Jerusalem would have been a 120-mile journey because they would have went around Samaria. They wouldn't have walked through the country of Samaria. And so he says, I'm going to meet them there. John 20 verse 2 Mary Magdalene showed up she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said they have taken away the body taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him and so Peter and John hear this news and in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 20 they hear the news from Mary and they get on their horse and go not a real horse they're running In fact, in John 20, verses 3 through 10, we read, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. I love this. John's writing this about himself. He doesn't mention his name. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter is there. He's running with him. And what does John say about him? I'm faster than Peter. (laughs) Like, I got him in a race. And stooping in, Peter looks in. John looks in, Peter walks in. And they saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Peter and John race to the tomb. John gets there first. John kind of looks in. Peter, you know Peter, right? He walks right in. Like, he's not there. I don't know who's there. Peter just walks right in checks it out. Now here, this is another testimony of why or how we know that Jesus's body wasn't stolen. When they walk into the tomb, they find the wrappings and they find the face covering, the face covering neatly folded and and seated. Now these would have been the expensive things. And if he was, if his body was stolen by grave robbers, which is a very real thing, why wouldn't they have taken those? And if it was stolen, and they somehow overthrew these Roman soldiers guarding the throne, why did they fold everything up and set it nicely where it was? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know about you, but when I hear accounts of people that are um, breaking into homes and stealing items and those kinds of things, nobody's cleaning up after themselves, So Peter and John head back after seeing what they saw, and in John 20, verses 11 through 18, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. She went back. She told Peter and John, and then she went back to the tomb. She's a wreck. In fact, all of the people that were associated with Jesus when he died were a wreck. Because for three years, they had devoted their life to following him, listening to him, and putting their complete hope and trust in him. And he's dead. And we read that she wept, and she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she had turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Because she's so broken and emotional and the tears are flooding her eyes. She turns around and sees Jesus, and she doesn't even understand. She doesn't realize who it is. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And John tells us that Mary thought that he was the gardener of the garden where the tomb was. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, if you've moved him from another tomb, if he's been... Somehow misplaced. Can you tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away? I'll care for his body. She doesn't get it. She's not seeing it yet. And I love verse 16 of John chapter 20. Jesus says to her, Mary, that's it. And the light bulb goes off because when he, she hears her name spoken by Jesus, her only response is Rabboni, which means teacher. She knows. I don't know about you, and I'm not trying to spiritualize this text, but the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus Christ knows each of his sheep by name. But when Jesus speaks your name, what a comforting thought. So Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. What's interesting from Luke's account, when the women come back to the disciples with the report that Jesus had been raised Their response is that it's idle talk. They thought that they had lost their minds. So what does this mean for us, church? When we consider all of these events that took place during the Passion Week, from the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey and they laid the palm branches on the ground and hailed him as the king As the Savior, as the Messiah, leading up to his rejection and betrayal, his trials, his beating, and the cross. And three days later when he rose again. What we need to ask ourselves is the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16 verse 15. Who do you say that I am? So who do you say Jesus is? A moral teacher? A good guy that did a lot of nice things? A story in a book? Or the Son of God? Your eternal future hangs in the balance for how you answer that question. May we echo the declaration of Peter who answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Savior. Everything that we celebrate, everything that we put our hope in, everything that we are looking for, longing for, is wrapped up in a living Savior. Church, we don't celebrate the resurrection just today. Sure, it's great to get all dressed up. Sure, it's great to be together like we are. But every day, every day we celebrate the power of God as we are raised to new life. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is in us. And what that tells me is that the work that God has begun in me and the work that he's doing in you will be completed in the day of Christ Jesus. And it will be completed by the sufficiency of God's power. That I am this vessel that God by his grace and kindness has called and saved. And that God is not finished working in me. And church, He's not done working in you. And the risen Jesus that we celebrate today and sing songs about and gather around a table and celebrate is the same Jesus that's going to meet you tomorrow morning and the day after that and next month and six months from now. And in every mountaintop and in every valley, the resurrected Jesus Christ will meet you right there. And He knows your name. And when you are struggling with fear, Jesus will call out to you. Like a tender father, putting his arm around us saying, it's going to be okay. How do we know it's okay? He's alive. He's alive. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And if he is raised from the dead, no matter what we face in life, nothing will separate us from his love. Nothing. Jesus Christ has secured your future with his sacrifice. And because he is raised from the dead, you too are raised to new life. We also, every day, wait. We wait. We wait for his return. You realize the king's coming back, right? Oh man, the king's coming back. When the king comes back, it's going to be good. He's going to gather his children together and he is going to set up his kingdom and we will enjoy his presence for all of eternity. We are gathered with him forever for his glory and our forever joy. Now for many of us, we probably came this morning realizing that if we were to go to the tomb right now with everything that we know and believe, we know the tomb is empty. But maybe some of you this morning are hearing this message and thinking, I'm not quite sure. I can read the scriptures for you. You can read them yourself. You can read the accounts and the testimonies of these four different writers. You can see the testimony of the people that believed from this account, from these four different authors for over 2,000 years of seeing the lives changed. You could see all the churches around that dot our countryside and say, okay, those are people that gather and, and claim to know who Jesus is. But if you're coming to the tomb this morning expecting that Jesus is dead, let me remind you, he is not dead. He is alive and he is alive so that you can find life he died 3 days before for your sin and by his grace he laid down his life so that you could be set free your sins forgiven and the father who sent him took joy and delight and raising His Son back to life. And where is He now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He's waiting for us. He's waiting for you. He wants to be with you. And I pray today, if you don't know it for the first time, you know that Jesus is real and He's alive. And I pray that you know that he loves you because everything that he did on the cross and everything that happened around his resurrection and everything that happened during this period of 40 days when he will walk on the earth as a raised person, teaching his disciples, was readying them to bring the gospel, the good news of what he has done to the world. And if you know Jesus today personally, you are living proof of what was accomplished 2,000 years ago. And so I pray that we live every day as Resurrection Sunday. And may God receive the glory. Let's pray.